0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Friday, July 28th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president spoke today on Long Island, where gang murders have gripped the communities of Brentwood and nearby Central Islip, six slayings of teenagers within the last few months. Since 2016, 17 killings have been attributed to the gang MS-13. Now, the New York Post says, here's a headline, MS-13 is turning Long Island into a homicide hotbed. It is not. There were 24 murders in Suffolk County last year. With one and a half million people, it's a murder rate well below the national average. And MS-13 is a problem. It's not just scary. It's a real problem. It should be scary. It needs to be addressed. And yeah, immigration laws have been exploited by the gangs. To the same extent Donald Trump is exploiting, this as an issue. Fear of foreigners is a mainstay of his message. But you know what? Some foreigners, like some of the ones in MS-13, should be feared. My problem with Trump isn't that he falsely calls criminal gangs a problem, though he does exaggerate how bad a problem they are. My critique is that his presidency has thus far shown it is incompetent and impotent to adequately address the problem or any other. His incompetence on anything other than rhetoric shines through. And when it comes to rhetoric... He's really only successful in the eyes of his most ardent supporters. So today in Suffolk County on Long Island, those supporters appeared in the form of a wall of blue police officers, Suffolk County police officers serving as a backdrop for the television cameras, uniform Suffolk PD. They were put in the position of human props as Trump freelanced about his accomplishments in general here. He takes credit for a key part of the Constitution.
0: And by the way, your Second Amendment is safe.
1: And what you saw were the officers slow to applaud, but applaud they did. Lots of police are not too keen on private gun ownership by non-professionals. Then Trump segued into a largely ahistoric account of his own role in the health care non-rollback.
0: You know, I said from the beginning, let Obamacare implode and then do it. I turned out to be right. Let Obamacare implode. Behind him,
1: all the Suffolk PD applauded. Why? Why would they be against Obamacare? Were they really against it? The police is a paramilitary organization. Maybe they just felt like they needed to applaud the authority figure. But then Trump segued into actions directly related to their jobs.
0: And when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody. Don't hit their head.
1: I said, you can take the hand away, okay? And the police behind him, of the 12 that I could see, 11 of them were clapping. At least I couldn't see the 12th's hands. You know, I do get it. Trump made, I guess, what could be called a joke. He's a showman. Maybe a clap to support him, and it's not an official endorsement of his words. You smiled if you were a cop because you're human. Maybe it struck you as funny. But you know what? My uncle was a Suffolk County cop, and he was no saint. But at least when he presented to civilians, including close members of his family, at least he always maintained a sense of decorum and at least said that, yeah, you always have to treat prisoners the right way. It struck me as really poor optics, these cops applauding. And we all know that Trump is no Boy Scout. In fact, they had to apologize for him. But Trump does call himself a champion of law and order, a friend to police. But the White House turning these officers into a blue wall of mindless approbation actually does not serve to protect any of us. On the show today, I spiel about Scaramucci's wondrously crass, on the record, off-the-reservation comments. But first, when they go low, we go high, brow. So I present a gentleman, a thespian, and a friend to the sciences. Alan Alda is here to talk about talking science. When I first heard about the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, I said to myself, wait, is that like a Chevy Chase Maryland, Chevy Chase the actor thing? But no, it's the actual Alan Alda. He is dedicated to communicating science and not only at Stony Brook University. He's out with a book called, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science
0: of Relating and Communicating. Hello, Alan Alda. How are you? Hello, how are you? I have to go to Alan Alda, Maryland someday. That's (laughs) sounds really good.
1: Yes, yes. It's the gateway to uh, uh, Cockiesville, from what (laughs) I understand. (laughs) So among the funny things of the title, if I understood you, would I have this look on my face, is a very early chapter explains that for a time, the look on your face was because a dentist had mutilated your face because of poor communication. Could you tell us the story of your frenium?
0: He didn't literally disfigure my face, but I found it difficult to smile in a normal way after the uh, surgery he had done. He sort of was trying to tell me he was going to do something to my freedom. Now, other doctors have told me it's pronounced, it's spelled frenulum. So I, I just know what I read on the internet. So, Yeah. But, but he didn't even mention that term to me. He just said, now there will be some tethering. And I, as you can imagine, didn't know what he meant by that. So I said, what do you mean? He said, tethering. I said, no, what what do you mean by tethering? He said, tethering, tethering. He started screaming. He started yelling at me. So I was too, um, I guess I was too timid. Even though I was 50 years old, I was certainly old enough to say, put the knife down and let's talk about this. He was wearing his white surgeon's gown, and I thought he knew what he was doing, so I didn't object. And it turns out I had a hard time smiling after that. I was in a movie, and the uh, cameraman said, I thought you were going to smile in that shot. I said, I did. He said, no, you were sneering. <laughs> and I looked in the mirror, and I, I had this big sneer on my face. But I can play villains much better now, so <laughs> not so bad. This
1: sounds like something out of the Sunshine Boys or something. Tethering! What don't you know about t- <laughs> And so this was about, what, 30 years ago? So are you yeah. saying that we can see a before and after if we really examine the Alan Alda from MASH face versus the Alan Alda from West Wing face? I don't know.
0: A- Maybe you don't see it, but I see you, it. Well,
1: yeah, you're a professional. I
0: now When I smile, I smile. I, I make sure my cheeks pull up so that the upper lip goes with them. I mean, it's it's an example, as you say, of a little bit of not good communication. Because there I was obviously in need of understanding something, and he was more in need of doing his favorite operation. Right. He was looking at me, he was kind of staring at me, but he wasn't picking up any signals from my face. Then I was really in need of more information.
1: So look, auto body guys don't communicate well. Waiters don't communicate well. In this case, it was a dentist that didn't communicate yeah, well. Yeah,
0: you but, know, auto yeah. body guys will say things to you like, uh, they'll open up the hood of the car and they'll say are you going to be driving your family in this? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You know, sort of a low-level threat. But the dentist, uh, he could have said, are you going to be using this mouth for smiling at all? You know, I would have got the idea.
1: But do you think it's something that's wrapped in the science? Your whole, I mean, such a large part of your life at this point is about science communication. Do you think that there was some specific scientific reason why this guy had uh, trouble communicating with you?
0: I don't think it was a scientific reason. I think it was the same reason... That everybody has, and that's really who I wrote the book for—is everybody, not just this one dentist. <laughs> Although I should send him a copy if I could ever remember his name. the The idea is we all have a tendency not to figure out while we're telling somebody something, especially the hard things. We don't—most of us—take into account how it's landing on the other person, and we we assume we do, we think we do, but we most of us can do a much better job of it. What are they ready to hear? What do they understand of the kind of language we use? Is it special language to what we're talking about? I mean, if I'm your financial counselor, am I using terms that you really don't understand? And am I using them to make you think I'm an expert? But um, is that really helping the person who's at the other end? I I don't think so. I think you have, with a good connection, with a, a personal connection, you have a much better chance of maintaining a good relationship, whether it's a business relationship or a family relationship, fathers and children, mothers and fathers together. Scientists with other scientists who are not in their own specialty need to be spoken to almost like a well-read layperson because they use the same words for an entirely different meaning. You
1: advocate using especially improv techniques because it's really about listening and reacting. Yeah. But it also seems if we, I could think of one discipline that it is exactly 180 degrees from, say, what an oncologist would do, it's, you know, yes and, okay, give me a situation, go.
0: <laughs> no, we don't give doctors situations. They, they have, they have real-life situations they have to deal with. Yeah. There's a story in the book that's, that's very interesting there's an exercise we teach called mirroring, which is an improv exercise. And uh, you and I would stand opposite each other and you would be my mirror. And as I move, you have to be exactly in sync with me to the millisecond. Now, this sounds almost impossible, but when people get good at it, when they do it enough, they get so much in sync that they get better accustomed to doing that with another person in conversation, but they also begin to learn that if I want you to be my mirror, I have to make sure you're able to follow me. Right. It's my responsibility. So that's the, an, an analogy for the communicator. I have to make sure you're up with me if I'm trying to communicate with you. If I hit you with a fire hose of information, I'll just knock you down. So this young doctor had studied with us. I think he was a med student. And he was on rounds with his supervisor, and the supervisor had to tell an older woman she was going to die of cancer in a couple of weeks. And he told her, and she didn't react at all. She didn't ask questions. She didn't show any emotion. She just sat there. And the supervising doctor said, "Uh, okay, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll go now. And when they got outside, the med student that we had trained said, do you mind if I go back in and talk to her some more? And he said that was okay. So we went in. He sat down in front of her, took her hand in his hand, and started to talk to her in the plainest terms. Didn't use the word metastasis uh, and anything like that. Mm -hmm. She started to cry and then started to ask questions. And he felt it was the same as the mirroring exercise, where she had been his mirror. And when she started to ask questions, He was her mirror, and he thought, just as in the mirror exercise, I was able to help her face her death, and she was able to help me be a better doctor. And it's very interesting to me that I think months after he did this exercise and took the rest of the course, he still found something meaningful, kind of deeply meaningful to him in this simple exercise of mirroring. It's hard to talk about it and give you the impression That what I'm saying is true. If you go through these experiences, and anybody who's studied improv will tell you the same thing, it changes you. It actually does something different for you.
1: Well, I believe it. I believe it from knowing what I know about acting, also from sales techniques. I mean, you read books that aren't written to uh, elevate the best angels of our nature. You read books about, you know, how can I sell you a copy or you don't need, and a lot of it is based on tricks like mirroring.
0: Yeah, that's true. And what mirroring brings out, one of the things it brings out is empathy, and empathy, I think, which is knowing, having an estimate of some kind about what the other person is going through, especially emotionally. That empathy, I think, is essential to communicating. And it doesn't mean it makes you a good person. It just is a tool for knowing what's happening in the other person. As, as you just said, you can use it to sell some somebody something they don't need. Right. An interrogator uses empathy to know how to make you feel helpless. Uh, a bully knows how to use empathy to to really put you in a pain emotionally. Right.
1: A, po- a politician with ill intent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. all kinds of propaganda does the same thing. So empathy in itself is not going to change the world but if if we want to do good things with other people it's a great tool maybe indispensable
1: well this is not on you but for people like you and I who prize science and value the scientific method and things like double blind studies and real intellectual rigor there is a frustration then once this brilliance is there in the world and it's not penetrating. It's not getting out there. And so so much of what you do and your work is about that. But to some extent, I worry about the other side of things, that these techniques can be used to propagate bad science. I mean, the thing about snake oil salesmen is that A, they were good salesmen, and B, snake oil doesn't work, or whatever the modern version of snake oil salesman is, like uh, the company Theranos. So what can you do, or what can we do to guard against that?
0: Well, I think it's like free speech. Yeah. The, The solution to lies is not less speech, it's more speech. The solution to misusing empathy, misusing what what we learn about good communication, is not less communication, but more communication and better communication. People for centuries have been using tricks of communication to sell people snake oil. So our job is to get better at it than they are.
1: Yeah, you know, so I was reading the chapter in your book with uh, Dr. Gopin of Duke who talked about sentence structure and how the last words of the sentence are sort of like a punchline. And I was thinking about your name in particular. And I've seen a few comedy routines where the name Alan Alda just gets a laugh. I was remembering there was one guy who was talking about the old game show, Sale of the Century, and this is where the contestants could buzz in early. And so the question would be, this actor buzz Alan Alda, right? Like, and it's funny because it's, a, and then I was watching, the Broadway (laughs) I've never heard of this this is the the Broadway show Oh Hello yeah and uh, there is a part where Alan Alda is mentioned and people get a delighted laugh do you think your name uh, just phonically works really well and communicates something
0: no I doubt it because it doesn't have a K in it that's true yeah if it was Akne Rokner (laughs) <laughs> that was then the, people would lie, lie down on the floor and laugh themselves silly. No, those two guys would do, oh, hello. Yes. I think they're hilarious. I think that they they get a laugh with my name just because they're funny. That's true. And I did their show with them twice, and I loved it. It does seem, uh, tell me if this is true, though. It's a portmanteau of Alphonse. Uh, Al- my name is uh, Alfonso D'Abruzzo. Yeah. And my father took his, that was his name, too, and he was an actor. And he took A.L. from Alfonso and D.A. from D'Abruzzo, and he made Alda.
1: Your father kind of invented the J.Lo, A-Rod naming convention.
0: I never thought of it that way. A little of the front
1: and yeah. a little of the back. Uh, why don't <laughs> let's, let's not get into that. I just wanted to go through a couple, I think, really well-regarded science communicators, and you tell me what you think their uh, secret sauce is. How about Carl Sagan?
0: He was wonderful. He He came at a time when... Science wasn't ready for him. It was really an unfortunate thing. I don't know if you know. There's something called the Sagan effect among scientists, which I hear from some people is diminishing, and from other people that it still has hold on us. Which is that at the time, many scientists thought the more popular he got, the less valuable he was as a scientist. Hmm. They just assumed that that was a a, a balance that had to be uh, maintained. That to be popular meant you weren't a real scientist, and as a matter, he was held back from being invited into premier science organizations because of that.
1: Neil deGrasse Tyson, what's his secret sauce? What do you like about him?
0: He's naturally funny, and it's it's fun to hear him have fun with complicated ideas. And uh, I, I've been on the stage with him, and we've 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 had fun together because he can he can go, which I love, in any kind of conversation or any kind of comedy. In fact, to go from serious to funny, without a break, and it's really nice.
1: How about Al Gore? Do you think he's a good science communicator?
0: I think so. I think he really brought a lot of attention to uh, climate change that wouldn't have come that way, you know, without his documentary, which did a really good job at that. I thought.
1: And how about Alan Alda? How have you gotten better in the 20-something years since you've been narrating and hosting science shows?
0: I've gotten better, and the funny thing is I got better during the two years I was writing this book because I really put myself to the test. In some ways, the book is uh, an account of how I tried to do better and how I tried to figure out, for instance, I knew not everybody would be able to go to an improvising class especially one devised especially for communication and I also knew this strange thing that no matter how good you are at empathy and how no matter how valuable it is to good communication and no matter how good it feels to do it slips away without practice without attention to it I don't know why that is because we're supposed to be social animals so I was trying to figure out ways I could improve my own empathy without a workshop. But I think I've developed a, a system for myself that possibly will work for other people, where I really practice when I'm talking to another person, I really practice letting them into my consciousness, my sphere of, uh, of understanding and, and, and observation.
1: I want to thank you. And listen, I'm a big fan of MASH. I, go, I roll old school with MASH. I remember Harry Morgan as General Steele. Took me a couple years to accept him as Colonel Potter. Love
0: the show. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> big fan of your work. Thank you. It's been fun talking to you, although I really haven't been listening to much of what you said. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the trick.
1: <laughs> Alan Alda, if I understood you, would I have this look on my face, my adventures in the art and science of relating and communicating? Thank you for this Bout of communication.
0: Thank you. That was fun.
1: And now the spiel. The fish farts from the leg up, or something. So says the mooch to Ryan Lizza, a couple of Italian guys. So it's okay. Might have been off the record, on the record. You know what? The record could scratch my bleep. So said the director of communications. Now, I, like many members of the media, do want to read to you what Scaramucci said. I want to read part of what Scaramucci said to you. Anderson Cooper wanted to read it to Ryan Lizza, but he couldn't. He couldn't bring himself to read all of it, so he outsourced it to Ryan Lizza.
0: I, I guess if you yeah. can, if you choice can read words, it. yeah,
1: maybe you can read. <laughs> You're what gonna make he me said. read this one. Yeah. <laughs> the New Yorker and the New York Times, most print outlets, went there, duly quoting the communications director. But TV had a hard time. I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to blank my own uh, expletive. Steve Bannon trying to blank his own expletive? Well, they put a partial transcript on the screen and it didn't just say blank my own expletive. It had S dot dot dot, my own C dot dot dot. So viewers of the more genteel network's in this less than ideal time, we're left to imagine that Steve Bannon was trying to S his own C, secure his own coronation, shine his own credentials, Set forth his own celebrity. Is that what Steve Bannon was saying? Or what Scaramucci was saying that Steve Bannon could achieve? And if so, does that have anything to do with what's being said here? Oh, Bill Shine is coming in. Let me leak the expletive thing and see if I can expletive block these people the way I expletive blocked Scaramucci for six months. Just to unpack that a little bit, what he was saying is... Cock. He was saying cock. You just unpack Scaramucci's cock. I think he could have said it. Don Lemon of CNN was pretty sure you could have said it. C-block him. Um, I I can probably say that word, but I just won't. These people, the way I C-blocked Scaramucci for six months. But no one wanted to say it. All the cock blocking and description of what Steve Bannon could do with himself. it It was too much for some of the TV anchors. Steve Bannon and his anatomy and an impossible description, by the way. That's right. I think it raises some real questions about Steve Bannon. It sure does. (laughs) Is he missing a vertebrae? Has he been doing yoga on the side? Does this explain all those loose-fitting garments? Now, it has been suggested that there is no way that Steve Bannon can see his own shoes, let alone, um, uh, select his own crown. However, for a second, come with me. Let's just reverse-engineer this. If there were a person who could satisfy his own cravings? Might that man not look and dress exactly like Steve Bannon, have an attitude and comportment that's very Bannon-esque? Just wondering. Now, there was one word that wasn't an expletive in all this, but it was kind of inexplicable to some, but I believe I have cracked the code. Here is uh, Anderson Cooper unpacking that part of the interview. Reince is a blanking, paranoid, schizophrenic, a paranoiac. Paranoiac? What? It has been asked. What is a paranoiac? Is a paranoiac even a thing? I can source this one. See, I know Scaramucci. I've been studying him, been listening to his podcast, and we're from the same milieu. As a guy from the Northeast in his 50s, he's a Springsteen fan. And Bruce used to say this word in concert when introducing the band. A homicidal, schizophrenic, paranoiac Roman Catholic. A homicidal, schizophrenic, paranoiac Roman Catholic. And then Springsteen would break into his great hit, 10th Avenue Cockblock, starring a starring song. But aside from sheer entertainment and gross incompetence, what does it all mean? Just this. On the day when the White House's main policy initiative went down in flames... All the president's men were busy describing how all the president's other men were performing acts of extreme dexterity on themselves. They weren't doing much to advance the agenda. Sure, the president sent out a couple of vaguely threatening tweets. It was reported that Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke tried to strong arm Lisa Murkowski who told him to go expletive himself and the horse he rode in on. Yeah, Ryan Zinke showed up for his first day of work as Secretary of the Interior riding a horse. But aside from that, all that the president has achieved is to provide programming for every news network in existence while getting none of his policies through. That, I suspect, might have been his plan all along. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube is always trying to get me to use the slow cooker. And I keep resisting. And he keeps pushing it on me. And finally I realize he's trying to crockpot me. We had help from Daniel Schrader, who slapped the cake mix out of my hand and told me to make it from scratch. Such a Betty Crocker blocker. Mary Wilson, just producer, warned the Cleveland Browns not to sign Osweiler. He's too slow. But did they clock Brock? They did not. Steve Lichtai likes the strong lager favored by Baroque composer Johann Sebastian. It's Bach's Bach. Not in stores, but it will be Bach. The gist. We saw Scaramucci on CNBC, and he was hawking the Cockblock cookbook, Block with recipes for Swiss char and a certain kind of choy, namely Bach, as advertised on Squawk Bach. per dapperoo peru. and thanks for listening.